It is a privilege to be with you this morning and to be able to share not only from God's Word, but again this evening as we talk about what God is doing in Spain, how He continues to work, and how we get to be part of that. So we encourage you, if you have any questions, maybe you won't be here tonight, stop by at the table. We'd love to share with you uh, more of what God is doing. Our goal is that you get a vision of maybe outside of, of where you normally live and operate. We want you to think and, and understand it at a new level, maybe of how God is working around the world. Because as we are coming into the Christmas season, we, there are individuals all around this globe who have the same desire that we are expressing this morning. You came once, Jesus, come quickly. And that's what our prayer is. And this morning as we look at Scripture, we're going to start in an unusual position given the nature of the season. And my goal is to come back around and so that at the end that we would have an opportunity to freshly declare our desire for the coming of Jesus Christ and celebrate his first coming. But as we go through, uh, we want to, to say again publicly, we so appreciate your participation in what God is doing in Spain. The friendships that we have here going back to uh, whether it was Central Seminary for Crystal and I, or then teaching for Spanish class for Crystal, and then in the, the chapel services. We are so thankful to be here. I'd ask you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. An awkward position maybe to start this morning as we are again entering the Christmas season. And it's going to be made more awkward because of the mental image I want you to have in your mind that we're going to start with, and that is is you come to Ecclesiastes 3, if you have never been involved in any type of Bible study or church setting, if you've never stepped foot within a church, but you have watched movies, this passage that we will look at today, you probably would have heard. And it's what is often recited at the graveside. Some vision with me now as we enter this, this concept, you're standing at the graveside, a funeral service, and the mist is descending. And you hear these words, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. You feel that weight. Now this passage, and we'll read through the whole passage shortly, but this passage is important to us and, and Ecclesiastes as a whole because we live and work in a postmodern context in Europe. And much like the USA, Ecclesiastes addresses Spaniards and Americans. It is for those who are dealing with big questions. It addresses the worldviews that we face daily. And it does so in a subversive manner. And this author, as he's sharing with us, he starts to, to say, you think this, I tried it and it failed. You think this, I tried it and it failed. You think this, I tried it and it failed. But not just at a worldview level, we could think of philosophical, materialists, relativists, stoics. We have interactions, Bible studies with all of those in our context. But as with people 
who are just looking for simple answers. This past week, Crystal and I were completing a a normal uh, health checkup with a nurse for a life insurance change, and we were talking with her. She'd come to the house, and she shared with, she was surprised because she said, roughly 80% of the millennials that I deal with in that age group, 80% are dealing with anxiety and depression. And then, as she was leaving, she recounted a time in her own life this two years ago that she had an extreme, what she called, soul-ripping experience with her own family. And this a lady that we've never met before is opening up and talking with us about the difficulty. And, and we think about the, the Christmas season, too. And we think about how happy we should be, but sometimes we aren't. And so Ecclesiastes addresses the questions at the, at the heart level, at that soul-ripping level, for those who sit and ask themselves, is my faith really just a crutch based on wishful thinking? Am I, what am I supposed to do when I feel like everything is pointless? What am I supposed to do when I think, when I'm exhausted from trying to do what is right? Or when the relationship is too taxing? Or when I'm at my breaking point? And Ecclesiastes addresses these head on. And today, we're going to be walking through it. The book of Ecclesiastes, as we read, if we would have been studying through this, and I know you've gone through this in the past, here at Fourth Baptist, it's written by Koleth. In the Greek, that's translated Ecclesiastes, which is where we get the book title. You hear from the words themselves, the preacher, or maybe in your translation, the teacher, or the philosopher, or speaker. It's from the point of view, and as we understand it, and the the best understanding we have is written by Solomon. It's the one who aligns the best. He was able to live life and knock on every single potential door and find out that it led him to more, in his words, vanity nothingness. And Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon sometime in about 900 BC, 950 BC, nearly 3,000 years ago, we can still see the picture or this image of Solomon pointing his finger at us saying, listen to me. And his words are like medicine. But they're hard medicine. They're the chemotherapy to the cancer that our society and often we have taken in. They're hard, but they can heal. And so, with this mentality, with this understanding, we're going to be entering the text. And if you've read recently Ecclesiastes, you'll recognize a couple of his key phrases. He uses vanity, which is talking about the fleetingness of life, the fleetingness of what we try, the grasping at bubbles and trying to save them up for later. And then you hear the phrase repeated, under the sun, 29 times. This ground level understanding of what we can see, taste, touch, feel. It's what in our society we just associate to, well, it's what science tells us. And so now we're going to read Ecclesiastes 3. And you have in your mind the picture of standing by the graveside. The mist is falling. 
To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is a gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it that men should fear before him that which is has already been and and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we read this passage and we consider it, that you would open our hearts, you'd address the cancer within us that we might be unknowingly living by and living in. Give us understanding in your text, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage that we just read is a poem, or it's constructed in this poetic form, and then a commentary on that reality. And the, the big idea, the overarching goal of Solomon in this, is rather ironic given the setting that we've we presented, and that is, Solomon wants you to know this. Rejoice and do good. Now, you should be thinking, where in the world did that come from, and how does he support it from this passage? Because with the setting that I gave of the funeral, how would we move from there and and watching movies, seeing TV shows, maybe reading books where this passage is quoted in that context— How in the world would that lead us to rejoice and do good? Well, the answer to that first question is in verse 12. It's what Solomon himself says, given the circumstances. I know that nothing is better for them, humanity, than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And in verse 13, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So we see that it's the big idea, but how does Solomon support that? How does he get there from this passage, which basically tells us, you do this and then this happens. Sometimes it's like this and sometimes it's like this. And we're going to answer that question in, with two points this morning. How do we get to the point where we can rejoice and do good when there's anxiety 
when there's depression, when there's discouragement, when there is fear, when there are doctor's visits, when there are therapy sessions? How do we rejoice and do good when families across the world or when we don't even want to see our own family in the same room? How do we rejoice and do good in the situation that seems to be compounded, especially around the holiday seasons between Thanksgiving and Christmas? When the vanity of life seems to be more tangible and palpable. It seems like everybody else is having a good time with their, lit, their Christmas tree and the carols, but in my house, it's a war zone. The first answer to that, how do we rejoice and do good, is this. By embracing our humanity. And here's what that means. Embracing our humanity. This, this passage walks us through the very fact that we are in time and cannot escape it. It's that relentless annoyance of the calendar. One individual said this, You vacuum the floors, you wash the dishes in the sink, you fold the laundry, clear off the kitchen tables, and six months later you have to do it all again. <laughs> That's what life is like. We try and try, and it seems like everything keeps coming back. We keep trying, and it keeps breaking. We are in time. And second, everything that we do happens in time. This poem is 14 pairs, and it's meant to encompass all of life. It's not meant to say these are all the things that happen in life, but everything in life happens between this and this. So you could be over here, or you could be over here, or you could be someplace in the middle, but everything happens in this spectrum. And he starts off, there's a time to be born and a time to die. And then he goes through harvesting, killing and healing, breaking down and building up, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing. He talks about tearing things down and building them up, embracing and separating, gaining and losing, tearing and sowing. He goes through all of these examples meant to be the bookends of life. This is what life is. It happens in between these two. And sometimes you're on this side and sometimes you're on this side. But you're always there. You're always within this, these parameters. Embracing our humanity, we recognize we are in time. We, everything we do is in time. And we respond to time. Solomon himself is writing this poem, and then he's reflecting on it. He gives us the following verses after we finish this poem in verses 9 through 15. We see this is what this all means. And then we are brought to nothing by time. In verse 9, he throws his hands up in the air and says, What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? What, what profit is in this? Everything cancels out. No matter how much you work and work and work, it's either going to be like a sandcastle on the beach washed away, or somebody else is going to step in and take it over. We are incapable of stepping out of time and we're incapable of making sense of this time. In verse 11, he says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. This concept of eternity in our hearts is that we desperately, desperately want to know why. We have a three-year-old in our house, and he desperately wants to know why about everything. But yet that never leaves. We just learn to stop vocalizing it. But we internalize it, and we keep saying in our own minds, why, God, does this happen to me? We all ask the question, why? We want to know, but we can't figure it out. I think, or it could be, or maybe, but then we never know. And God has placed that in us for some reason. It's like one commentator made this comparison. It's like we're an inchworm just working our way along this incredibly beautiful tapestry. And we, we fathom that this is big, but we just can't make the connections. There's dark spots, there's light spots. How do they fit together? Eternity in our hearts is this desperate longing to know why. And then in verse 14, he tells us, not only are we incapable of making sense and we are brought to nothing by this time and we respond to time, but he also says we are unable to change what happens in time. And I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. And then if we go to verse 15, we see that we are bound to repeat the times. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. That's our first point, embracing our humanity, our timeness. In between this bookend of birth and this of death, how in the world does that lead us to rejoice and do good? Because if, as reading through this, I've sat down at a, at a, in a cafe with a, an atheist who, who his idea, as we went through Ecclesiastes, was this makes sense. Look, it doesn't matter. Like everything, where it starts, it ends, it doesn't make a difference. And in, in this, these passages that speak about the man being between them, he says, my friend would say, embrace that and just recognize it really doesn't matter. Another friend, reading through it uh, with him, the book of Ecclesiastes, and he was all about finding pleasure. And he reads this to rejoice and do good and eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. And he's like, yes! But he couldn't come to terms with the fact of the rest of Ecclesiastes. It's all going to fall away. Ecclesiastes 2, I tried that. In the, in the house of mourning and the house of weeping. I tried the extremes. And so we ask ourselves right now, I want to have joy. I want to rejoice. I want to do good. I want to enjoy the meals that I eat. I want to enjoy the family that I have, the work that I have. How do I do it? And Solomon is telling us in this, the first step is embracing our humanity, recognizing that we are mere humans. I sat with an individual. She was a, uh, a research scientist working in a lab, and she had gotten her PhD in Germany. And, and I, we are talking through, because of our English hour, what are memories? And she was saying, well, memories, scientifically speaking, are just chemical reactions in your brain. 
That's it. There's no meaning to them. There's nothing significant about them because you can modify those reactions and change memories, essentially. Because we're just matter. And the way that our brains function, the protoplasm heats up and it, 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 it works within itself to, to make connections in our brain, that can be modified. But that's all you are, chemical reactions. And so, in this essence, she's understanding we're human. We're just flesh and blood. But that doesn't lead us to Solomon's ultimate conclusions. To rejoice and do good. Because we need the second part. Here, Solomon is speaking under the sun. This is what we can see. This is what we can understand. But we need a second perspective. And that is found in number two. By fearing our God. We embrace our humanity and we fear our God. And we see this. This isn't just in this passage, but Ecclesiastes is laced with it and actually completes it. It finishes with this concept. The end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In order to understand this fear of God, we recognize who he is and respond in humility and honor to him. Fearing our God is what takes us from this this sad, discouraged, meaningless existence into being able to do what Solomon says, and that is rejoice. Rejoice and do good. Enjoy that meal, enjoy your work, enjoy your family. And we can see why, why do we fear our God? Because he's sovereign. In the same passage, verse 10, he has made each moment beautiful. He has ordered the times, in verse 11. His works are enduring and unchanging, verse 14. God will make all things right, in verse 15. He will call back from the past and set things in order. He is sovereign, and so we fear him, we honor, respect him. He is intentional. God has placed this burden on us, verse 10, for a certain reason, and he has given a desire but withheld the fulfillment, in verse 11, for his good reasons. And he is gracious. In verses 12 and 13, he tells us, these are for you. Rejoice and do good. Enjoy the food. Enjoy what you drink. Enjoy when you go to work. And then throughout Ecclesiastes, we see your family. You think that all the money gathering, you think of all the the exertion and toil, you think of all the, the name building will bring you satisfaction. It won't. But these little gifts that every day you appreciate, those are God's good gifts to you. We are endlessly reacting to time, but God is the one who orders it. In our humanity, we live in, the book sh- in between the bookshelves. But God sees all things. He is, he is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He knows and plans. So with this concept in our mind, as we consider embracing our humanity, and then we see the second fearing our God. We're going to go back to that initial visual image standing by the graveside. 
the mist is falling. The grave is open and finish concluding remarks. But we're going to change one thing. How would that image and how would those sensations and that feeling that you experience when you place yourself in, that, in your mind in that place, how would those change if the person who was being buried was different? What if that person was your worst enemy, your closest tormentor, the one who abused and assaulted you, and in that grave lies the one who whispered lies in your ears and led you to your worst defeats? How would you feel about attending that funeral? How would it change to go from a loved family relation to your worst enemy? And you might be thinking, I don't have an enemy like that. I don't have someone that I hate that bad. I don't have someone who has been that horrible to me. But you do. We do. That enemy lying in the grave is part of each one of us. It is our pride, our rebellion, our striving to be at the center of the universe. It is what that part of us that says, no, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I don't care what God says. I am going to do this. It is that, that motivation that, like our Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, leads us to say, what does God know? That element of taking our humanity and saying, no, I'm not just human. I am the center of the universe. It is about me, and I can control my destiny. That is the enemy that leads us down the path of trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing. It leads us to the, our regrets. It leads us to the discouragement and the depression because we are, we are working so hard at holding it all together and finding all the answers and being God. And that's really, in our circumstances, we are working with people and reading Scripture. They love what Jesus says until you start to get to the point where it's, pick up your cross and follow me. Start to get to the hard words of Jesus Christ. Lay down your life and you will find it. You get to the hard words of Jesus to the hypocrites, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and his rebuke of them. And then it starts to be a little uneasy. What if Jesus were to say that about me? But if we are able to see that pride, that that rebellion in the grave, our old man being buried, we are free to rejoice. We are free to do good. We are free to say, God, you are God. I am just a man. And why would you even think of someone like me? When we understand that it is our good Father who is in control. We can begin to get down to the serious business of enjoyment and rejoicing and doing good. And we can sit around the table because we, in our minds, don't have to figure out how we'll keep this for all of eternity. We can rest and say, my good Father will take care of me tomorrow. I will rejoice today. He has taken care of me too. Up until this point, he will continue to do so. And I will trust in that. I am human, but he is God. And all throughout Ecclesiastes, we see this in chapter 2 and 3 and 5 and 8 and 9 and 11, repeating the same concept, God is God. But we're missing a piece. If we were to stop with Ecclesiastes 3, 
Because there's a piece that solidifies this exponentially, and that is that Jesus Christ has come. That what we celebrate in our, this time leading up to Christmas, and we decorate in remembrance of it and in rejoicing around it. But Jesus Christ was the perfect example of how to do this. We saw him sitting at table. We saw him with people, and the, the religious leaders were out on the outside saying, how could you do this? Why would you do this? We see him receiving the good gifts of others in John 12. And his own disciple, Judas, saying, well, you could have spent the money better. But Jesus says, don't take this away from her. He's rejoicing and do good. We see him walking on his way to Jerusalem and stopping and healing two blind men as he knew he was headed to the cross. He is the perfect example of what it looks like to recognize that my heavenly Father has things under control. But not only was he the example, and so we just say, well, you try harder. He also enables that for us. Jesus Christ, the one who came, he lived perfectly. Because we can't. He achieved the affirmation of the Father in him and what he did, and gives that to us, that approval, that right standing with God. Jesus Christ died sacrificially so that we could enter into the family of God, as the sons of God, and not only just say our creator, we can say our father. Jesus Christ lived intentionally and by the Spirit, and he has given us his Spirit so that we might live in obedience and filled with that Spirit. Jesus Christ is the one who makes it right. He makes it possible for us to do what Solomon says, rejoice and do good. You're a, you're a man, you're human, you are frail and weak, and you have no vision of the future, only what is now. And you, your, very, your emotions and your strength can be zapped in just a moment. Things that you took for granted can be taken away. You are just a man. But then at the same time say, but you are the creation of a good God. He cared so much for you that he sent his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can you not rejoice knowing that you are frail and weak but God knows that better than you and he still loves you? How can we not do good to others knowing that God has poured out his wonderful grace on us? Not because any single one of us deserved it, but because he loves us. How can we not sit at the table with our family and say, Thank you, Father, for this good food? Because each day he's providing and giving. But it takes some serious consideration. It takes us standing at the graveside and saying, my pride, my rebellion, my attempt to seize control from the creator has to die so that I can look at my heavenly father and say, Father, I desperately need this. I don't know what's going to happen, but I need you. 
That is how Solomon tells us we can rejoice and do good. Embracing our humanity and fearing our God. So this Christmas season, as we reflect on the coming of Jesus Christ as a baby to live with us, God with us, to live perfectly in a way that we could never live, to die sacrificially, to fulfill a payment that we could never pay, rise victoriously and give us new life, let's rejoice. Let us do good. Let us love others because we have everything that we need in our good Father. And don't, let's stop the anxious scheming and the frantic toil. I would love to stop waking up at 2 a.m., And thinking, what about this and what about this? And when I do, I have to remember God is in control. Stop the guesswork about God's timing, but instead recognize God as God. Be thankful for the good gifts from his hands. We don't deserve it. That's why they're gifts. And don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift comes from our Father. Let us rejoice and do good. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you that in spite of the fact of our frailty, you have placed your thoughts upon us. You've considered us. We thank you that in spite of our sin, you have given us your son so that we might exchange our rags for his righteousness. We praise you for that, but we ask that this would be true in our hearts, that as we are anxious and discouraged, when we struggle and fear, when we don't know the answers and we, we just want to give up, that you would be at the center of our minds, that you would through your spirit and your word and your people, remind us of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.